Hey you, yes you, thanks for tuning in to the Healthy, Wild and Free podcast. My name is David Benjamin, I'm your host and the founder of HealthyWildAndFree.com. If you're like me, you understand that health, the mind, body, spirit, heart connection, and living a green, eco-friendly, sustainable lifestyle are some of the most valuable and life-enhancing lessons that we can learn and pass on to our children to live happy and abundant lives. That's why this podcast was created to help you grow in these areas. If you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to HealthyWildAndFree.com, click the box at the top right-hand corner to get a free copy of our latest ebook, and you will be subscribed to be notified about future podcasts. Thanks for subscribing and tuning in. Enjoy. Hello, podcast listeners. This is David Benjamin from HealthyWildAndFree.com. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Max Strom. He's the author of A Life Worth Breathing, and he teaches teaches and lectures about yoga, meditation, breathwork, spirituality, and trans, personal transformation. And uh, I'm going to put him on the call right now. And hello, Max, are you there? Yes. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Doing very well, David. It's a nice spring day in Maryland here. Good to hear. Same here in Michigan. <laughs> um, well, beginning of summer now for us. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed your book thoroughly. It was actually, honestly, one of the best books I've ever read. I got a lot of uh, insight in a lot of different areas of my life while reading it. And uh, one of the things that kind of really stuck out to me in your book was uh, in one of the chapters you talked about how you played uh, football in high school and how yeah. uh, how there's a situation uh where, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story, but basically there's kind of a transformational shift in in, in that experience and uh, in the, how you kind of transferred into yoga later in life. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about kind of your, what you call kind of the ego-driven pursuit of athletic excellence and how it kind of transformed into the work you do now? Yes, of course. Thank you for your, your compliment on my book. I appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, since your listeners can't see me, I'm, I'm about six foot five, and when I was in high school, I was about 230 pounds. I was a weightlifter, and um, was being scouted by the Oakland Raiders. This was way back, like 1972, something like that. I was a defensive tackle, quarterback, headhunter, uh, most feared guy on the team. I was hyper aggressive and uh, really loved the emotional, you know, tribal. Um, exciting aspect of football, just like most kids do on the football team. I wasn't that different uh, than my other teammates. But I, I've always been kind of a sympathetic person. In other words, I, I do care about people. And even when I was a teenager, I I showed early signs of empathy toward my fellow man and, and woman. Um, but uh, what started happening is, as you know, football is a rough sport. And um, I'm 15, 16 years old hitting people who are trying to run through my line and starting to hear bones crack and knees come apart. And I had seriously injured a couple of kids, uh, not on purpose at all, just, just doing my job, but, you know, permanent knee damage uh, in both cases. Um, and then this one day, this is the, the story you ask about in the book, a halfback running back uh, came straight at me, which is a, defensive tackles dream, you know, so okay, this is going to be really easy, because generally they're very slippery and they're hard to tackle, but he ran right at me for some crazy reason. So I hit him as hard as I could. It was a direct hit, and uh, he went down and didn't get up for a while, and of course they stopped the game, and I ran to the sideline, and the coach praised me, and my teammates were jumping all over me. It was, you know, the best hit of the day, all that sort of thing. And then um, a few minutes went by, and the boy still didn't wake up. And then a few more minutes went by, and a few more minutes went by, and uh, they couldn't revive him. And um, I started feeling really sick to my stomach, and I realized the gravity of what we were really dealing with here, that I may have just put this kid in a permanent coma for the rest of his life. Or wheelchair, I didn't know, but it had been, you know, five minutes, six minutes, and nothing. So... Finally, he came to a little bit. They put him in the ambulance and took him away, and my coach and my teammates still thought this was the greatest thing ever that I could have gotten in the ambulance. But 
I didn't feel that way. And uh, I asked several times during the game and f- about the kid, and eventually I, I was told that he was okay, that he left the hospital. So that was great. But uh, I really thought carefully about the ramifications of my actions and the game itself, and I decided that I, I didn't I didn't feel this was right, that I was actually potentially killing a kid or putting him in a coma, and I had already given lifelong injuries to uh, boys my age. And so we, I think we had one more game after that, which I played, and once again hurt a, a quarterback. I knocked him, uh, I remember, into the, his bench on his uh, teammate's side to great applause, but he was out for the rest of the game, and I thought, all right, that's it. I'm not going back next year. And that was along, along with some other uh, experiences uh, led, really led me to start questioning not just what I was doing in sports, but what what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? What should I be doing with my life uh, other than just doing what everybody else is doing? I, I started questioning these things at an early age. Right, and and when you started uh, yoga, I know you you kind of talked about how it was kind of a a shift for you in the in your way of thinking, and and how it was more about growing individually as opposed to uh, you know dominance and and the ego and that kind of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about how uh, that kind of that first kind of aha moment or kind of realization um, with the practice of yoga in your life has has affected your life? Yes, of course. Uh, well, first of all, in my teens, uh, after that experience, uh, around that same age, or around, I think I was almost 16 years old, I started studying um, religion, philosophy, everything I could get my hands on at the library and in the bookstores. I wanted to know everything about uh, everything. You know, I read about Buddhism. I read the Bible a few times. I, I read everything. I could get my hands on, like I said. And I started meditating also, and I found a Qigong teacher, which is, you know, the Chinese uh, standing breathing exercises, put simply. And uh, I practiced with a very good teacher for a few years until he moved away. But with all of these practices and with my philosophical understanding of of life, uh I still didn't find myself particularly a happy person. And emotionally, I was still suffering from a lot of the same things that other people suffer from, such as a lack of intimacy, you know, loneliness, um, um, problems with uh, socially communicating with people at a high level, um, feeling connected to my fellow man and woman. I still was still struggling with a lot of the basic psychological issues and eventually when I discovered Hatha Yoga I realized there there had been a missing link the whole time in my spiritual and religious studies that missing link was the human body, my body because Hatha Yoga includes obviously movement and, and breathing in a certain way when you move and at the end of each class I wouldn't just feel better like we feel after we exercise I've done lots of sports, even after football, uh, non-aggressive sports, you know, running, weightlifting, et cetera. And I know what endorphins are. I know what the runner's high is. And that's not what I felt after yoga. I felt uh, a deep sense of peace and relaxation, which lasted until the next day, through the next day, to a degree. Whereas other exercise, I would feel great for a few hours, but the next morning I would feel up. Uh, wake up feeling basically the same. So now, with the practice of Hatha Yoga, I was able to change how I felt. I started feeling balanced. Uh, Anxiety started going away. My sleep improved. And my sense of um, slight desperation or anxiety that we often feel with other people started disappearing. I felt comfortable in my own skin and I was much more relaxing to be around and I noticed that people seemed to be more attracted to me I'm not talking about uh, to date I'm just talking about wanting to talk to me for instance if I was in a gathering people would approach me more often because I was approachable my body language 
that 90% nonverbal communication that we have, was inviting people to talk to me. So a whole list of the behavioral uh, changes happened with me that caused other people to behave differently toward me, all in a positive way. So really it was just you you really were in tune with your authentic self and you could you you felt that and you resonated in that and that kind of uh emanated to, to the people around you in life. So it was kind of a almost like growing into yourself further, if you will. Yeah. Uh the way I like to say it is uh, it's like being an archaeologist and you're excavating yourself where just buried with uh shields and scars emotionally uh, and we dig through all that and reveal the best part of us is buried down there and sometimes we're afraid to reveal that part of ourselves because we're afraid we'll be hurt or embarrassed or shamed but then once we do excavate ourselves and reveal ourselves we find the opposite is true that people you know give us a round of applause for finally there you are (laughs) we've been (laughs) waiting for the real you this whole time yeah that's interesting um, you talk about in your book uh, the egg, or excuse me, the mind is. Uh, how to phrase this? Uh, the the body is like the yolk, and and the mind is like the egg. Basically, nothing happens in your mind um, that doesn't happen in your body, and we kind of separate the two um, in our lives. Um, how do we know? You know, the 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 mind and the body are one, and how can we use that to kind of uh, be more present and, and kind of be- how can we use that to kind of benefit our lives more? Yes, I think the way I put it was the uh, the mind is the um, is the uh, yolk and the body is the surrounding white part of the the egg and that the the mind itself when you think about it really is larger than the body and when you start thinking about it that way it, it, you can immediately feel it. Just like when we don't like people walking, strangers walking up to us closer than three to two feet, right around there, they get that close, especially if they're facing us, we immediately become uncomfortable because that's not just our space. It is where our mind works. We have these sensors that are constantly reading this area around us. And um, so if we think about our mind being larger, including the body and larger than the body, it changes how we think about our body. Now, we, we talk about our body, our emotions, our mind as three separate things, but they really aren't separate. I mean, we can discuss them as if they're separate, and it's useful to, such as, you know, there are doctors that specialize in fixing wrists and hands, but that doesn't mean you don't have the rest of the body and that it's not connected to your shoulder. Um, it's all connected, but we can... Uh, with the, the body is entirely connected to each other, but we can study certain aspects, and we can't even we can lose a certain aspect. For instance, amputees lose a limb, so we can say, "Well, see, that body wasn't me, but it, it was. It was a piece of you." And we experience all of our emotions in our body. When we talk about our emotions, we have to talk about our body because that's where we feel them, that's how we express them, and that's where we store them. And with our mind, when we get really um, consternated or we're under great pressure at work, whatever is giving us a lot of stress, we immediately start feeling it in our body. We'll start rubbing our hands, our, our neck gets stiff, um, our, the, the sleep of the body is, is highly interfered with when we're under a lot of stress. So the mind has a huge impact on the health of the body. The emotions have a huge impact on the body. And vice versa, the body has an impact on the emotions and mind. For example, if you break a leg and you're in great pain, you can't really study for a test the next day. You you can't take in information when you're in pain. And you're not very nice to be around when you're in physical pain either. You're not good company. Mm -hmm. The body, whether it's in pain or distress in any way, will affect your emotional life and your mental life, it's all holistically connected. And, again, it is useful to study them individually, but it's highly important to understand that ultimately they aren't three individual parts, they're three parts of a whole. And so that's why I think Hatha Yoga or Qigong is integral 
to a spiritual practice. Because you can't leave the body out of it. Even though the body is temporary, it's what we're living in for now. And if we let it uh, deteriorate early, we're going to suffer. And when we suffer, we can't think straight, we can't meditate, we can't study, we just suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, The how they're connected and how they're... Um, they affect each other and, and, you know, we can use each one um, to our advantage to positively influence those other areas as well. Um, you, you talk a lot about forgiveness, uh, gratitude, and love, specifically kind of those three. Uh, wh- which of those three do you feel is is kind of easiest for someone to kind of start to feel if they're kind of in a, in a down state? It's It's kind of like just a quick analogy of that. It's like if there's a train that's going, you know, 50 miles an hour, it's hard to jump on that moving train. But if there's a train moving 10 miles an hour, you can run alongside it and jump on. So if we can kind of understand which emotion uh, we can feel in order to kind of progress up the emotional ladder, if you will, which of those three, uh, forgiveness, gratitude, and love, do you feel is easiest to start with? I, I highly recommend that to start changing our emotional state that we focus on gratitude. And I'll explain why. Um, let's say someone has um, really upset you, someone has personally deeply offended you, someone that you know and care about, to the point where you're preoccupied with it all day, maybe for days, maybe for weeks, you know, a, a, a betrayal or something like that. And uh, if you came to me and sat in front of me and like, let's say a one-on-one class and I said okay think of this person and try to extend love toward this person this may prove to be impossible if you're really enraged toward this person you you could say you know I'm sorry I'm trying but I just don't feel it and then if I said well forgiveness is hugely important part of our practice why don't you see if you can forgive that person but the answer might be the same. You know, not today. I, I maybe tomorrow I can forgive this person, but not today. But if I s- said gratitude, don't think about gratitude. Think about someone, somebody else, anybody else. But choose someone that you feel extraordinary gratitude toward, and focus on that person. Visualize that person. So you close your eyes. You focus on the person that you feel the most gratitude toward. People often think of their little children or they think of a grandparent. Someone who had a big impact, such as um, teaching them the meaning of love or showing them what love really is or saving them from an awful situation in life or bringing up their self-esteem so that they believe in themselves and start to excel for the first time in life. This sort of relationship. As soon as you start to think about this person sitting right in front of you looking at you, you find your, you know, the sense of a heart-opening connection with this person. And once you, your heart fills with gratitude, which it will, the gratitude pushes the negative emotions out. You don't even have to think about it. It just does. It's like you open the curtains in a dark room and the sun comes in, the darkness is gone. Just It just works that way. Once your heart is filled with gratitude, an immediate secondary response happens, which is humility. Uh, We become humbled by our gratitude and reminded of what's important. It's like a recalibration or a realignment of priorities. And then we're more able to consider extending compassion to someone from our gratitude or possibly forgiving someone or remembering that we love that person. Cicero, the Roman philosopher and senator, said that gratitude is the parent of all virtues, the parent of all virtues. And I agree with him. I think that uh, it's really the place to start to have access to the higher emotions. It's hmm. interesting. So gratitude kind of opens up, a, almost opens up really a space in your heart to be able to forgive because it, yeah. like you said, kind of recalibrates that, and then it allows you to kind of uh, progress to that to love at, at a higher um, vibration, if you will. Um, That's right. 
Very interesting. Uh, you talk a lot about breath in your book and and even kind of going, I liked how you kind of shared the history of it, like Aloha uh, meant the breath of God. Um, what, what is the importance of breath and, and and how does it affect us and how do we actually breathe properly as well? Mm, okay. Um, breathing, there, there's two types of breathing essentially. There's subconscious breathing, which is what we're doing now as we're speaking. Like I'm not thinking about my breathing when I talk to you. That's what most people do most of the time. And then there's conscious breathing, which very few animals can do. And we're the only non-marine animal that can consciously breathe, according to studies. So conscious breathing means I'm going to, d- to take over the reins of my breathing. I'm going to decide how to breathe, and I'm going to monitor it as I do it. And, for example, I find myself nervous, so I'm breathing very shallow and maybe not inhaling for 20 seconds at a time because I'm under stress. I'm going to decide to breathe, and I'm going to breathe slowly and deeply. That's conscious breathing. Now, if you take conscious breathing, there are many styles that are taught conscious breathing in Qigong, in yoga, and in many other disciplines. Different types of breathing create different responses from the body. All positive, of course, but some, for example, might be a breath to enliven you if you're really tired or overworked or mentally um, murky. Uh, Other breaths are meant to calm you, uh, particularly if you're under duress or great stress. So the, the way we breathe consciously can change our emotional and mental state, and that's why they're taught and that's how they work, and they do work. Now, there's another layer to it, which is harder for people who haven't experienced it to understand, and that is that it also affects us emotionally. Deep conscious breathing affects our emotional life, not just pushing stress out. It's not that that simple. Our lungs are connected to our emotions, and when we hear that the first time, sometimes we're very skeptical, but then I remind people, say, well, you know, when you cry, what is crying? You're having a great day. You get a phone call. You find out something very tragic has happened to someone you love. You put the phone down. What happens? Physically, what happens to you? You hunch over. You turn your face away from others. You might cover your face. Even if there's no one around, you still might cover your face. And your lungs will start to spasm, haphazard movement and saline solution comes out of your eyes. And it's really hard to inhale. It starts to be painful to inhale. We instantly have a breathing lung reaction to grief. Now, the Chinese medical doctors observed this a couple thousand years ago, and they associate two emotions with the lungs. One is grief, and the other is inspiration. They're opposites, as you can see. Because when we get really inspired, we inhale. We we are th- trying to think of an idea, and then we go, oh, I know where we're going to go for dinner. I got the perfect place. Or we see someone walking across the park, and we say, oh, look who's there. I haven't seen her in 20 years. You know. So when we inhale suddenly, it's when we're inspired, and when we exhale suddenly, it's when we've just dropped our keys in the gutter or something like that. Oh, you know, or the, your favorite baseball team loses. Oh, you can hear the whole crowd. Tens of thousands of people exhale together or inhale together. (laughs) So you can really observe this in society. Once you know that this is how we behave, you can see it all around you. Um, So the point about breathing to change the emotional state is that if you are depressed or anxious, you do breathing exercises, you can move that depression or anxiety out of your body and feel re-inspired to live again. And that's no small thing because as you know from reading my book, the the amount of people using emotional drugs now in this country is astounding and and it's rocking up. Uh, We have in this country, America, one out of four women are taking either antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs. It's up to one out of four now. Mm -hmm. And for sleep, uh, 
sleep is the number one problem, one number one health problem in this country. We have over 80 million people, eight zero, taking sleep medication every night. If you have to take sleep medication, it means your nervous system is out of, out of balance. So if we can rectify these problems or bring ourselves back into balance using conscious breathing, that's a, a, a great gift because there's no side effects. Once you learn the, the techniques, there's no cost. It's just there's just nothing but positive benefits. Mm-hmm. So we're literally kind of to some degree uh, inhaling inspiration and exhaling grief, and with an emo- with an emotional kind of experience. Well, uh, yes and no. If we're breathing unconsciously, subconsciously, we're not. Mm-hmm. We're just we're just breathing. We're just exchanging gases. We're taking in oxygen, expelling CO two. But when we do conscious breathing exercises, yes, there are certain breathing exercises that help us purge ourselves of grief. I've never taught a breathing class, and I've taught tens of thousands of them at this point, where at least 50% of the class didn't have tears running down their face simply from doing the breathing exercise. Wow. And here's here's the um, Here's the way I like to describe it so people can understand this, because it, it's hard to understand. If you, It's like falling in love is hard to describe if you've never experienced it. But once you experience it, you say, okay, now I understand. This is life-changing. So if you talk to therapists, people who you talk to about your problems, and you ask them, what's the general response to people when you ask them how they feel? For instance, you relay a story. Let's say I relay a story of, my childhood that when I tell the story it sounds quite tragic but I look kind of non-emotional about it I'm just relaying the story then the therapist says so Max how do you feel how does it make you feel when you say it the the most common question and then I might say I don't know or I'm not sure this is so common it's incredible so we know we have feelings we know they're way down there somewhere in our body but we don't know exactly how to articulate them, especially if this um, event happened a long time ago. So when we do the breathing practices, what tends to happen is it takes these buried emotions up to the surface, above the horizon, you could say. And once you can see more clearly these feelings, you start to understand them. And once you start to understand what happened, like, oh, that's what happened when I was five years old. Now I understand it because I have the context of an adult. Once you begin to understand them, you stop fearing them. And once the fear goes away, you start healing. That's the process that breathing practices can offer you. Hmm. That's interesting. There's, uh, I actually uh, I did a water fast and... When I did a water fast, I felt a lot of kind of different emotional, uh, a lot of feelings were like brewing to the surface during that water fast, and it sounds kind of similar to uh, what what breathing exercises can provide for someone. Um, Yes, that's right. You know, fasting uh, also uh, is a great reminder that our, our body and our emotions are connected. When you start denying the body of, food, all kinds of emotions <laughs> come up, mm-hmm. not just about I want food, but memories and uh, relationships, all kinds of emotions come up to the surface. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we use to some degree both, well, really food, uh, improper breathing, and I know you mentioned uh, smoking as well in your book. Do you think we use all these things along with even more to kind of suppress emotions? Yes, I, I think I wouldn't include breathing in there because the breathing is totally subconscious, uh, subconscious activity, what would you call an autonomic activity. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, yes, I think that we tend to use food to suppress emotions. I mean, it's made it's a common joke in society that someone breaks up with someone and let's say your your romantic partner breaks it off with you you get depressed, you go to 7-Eleven and buy a pint of ice cream. Like, What mm-hmm. what does a pint of ice cream have to do with emotions? But it does. E- eating food, especially certain types of food, suppresses or uh, 
makes us feel numb to pain. Mm-hmm. So I think this is one of the roots of obesity even, is when I eat a certain amount of food, I have a dopamine response. You know, literally the, the drug in the body is called dopamine. And I don't feel anxiety. I don't feel depression. I don't feel loneliness. I don't feel bad about myself. I feel great. And food is the most accessible and least expensive drug available. I mean, if you say, I, I would love to fall in love, well, good luck. You may meet someone tonight that you'll fall in love with, but you probably won't. You may even say, well, I would love to have sex tonight. You may not find anyone to have sex with either, but you can always buy a pint of ice cream, and it's not very expensive, cheaper than a, you know, a glass of whiskey. So food is a suppressive uh, activity, and smoking uh, is a way of pushing grief down. If you talk to smokers who've actually quit smoking, let's say five years they've quit, no smoking, five years, and then one day you see they're smoking it again. You say, you know, John, what happened? You, you quit five years ago. John's not going to say, oh, I saw this great cigarette ad and it made me want to smoke again. John's going to say something like, yeah, but, you know, I'm going through divorce or I lost my house or some tr- some tragedy or um, highly challenging event happened. And he or she goes back to the old self-medicating cigarette to push the grief or the fear down. Mm-hmm. To some degree, isn't I mean, smoking is kind of really polluting your body with, with chemicals and it's kind of diluting the amount of pure oxygen in your body. So is that, I mean, that's kind of suppressing your your ability to breathe to some degree and then also kind of the ability for your body to have oxygen to kind of work and flow properly. So to some degree, isn't that kind of a, a, a breath suppressant, if you will? I don't know what to call it, but something along those lines. It is, but uh, there's there's even a more insidious part of it. I think that if you watch a, a real heavy smoker take a drag of a cigarette, they're breathing in deeply. So they actually, their body actually feels like, I'm doing what I should be doing. I'm going to take a deep breath here, which is what they should do. But they inhale the smoke instead of the air, clean air. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's it's one of the ways we trick the body, unfortunately, to our detriment. The other way is with sugar. If you look at nature, the foods of nature, everything that's sweet is good for us. And the body knows that. That's why we have this sensor on our tongue that tells us when something is sweet. When a piece of fruit is ready to eat, it's sweet. When vegetables are ripe, they're sweet. When meat is at its perfect stage, meat from an animal, it's sweet, etc., etc. But mm-hmm. when we, when the body was designed this way, there was no such thing as white sugar or corn syrup or these things like that. So we were never able to really overeat sugar and create diabetes and so on. So the way we trick the body, we don't mean to, but every time we eat some, you know, a candy bar or some cake or something, the body says, oh, this is really good for me. This is the highest quality food. Eat more. Right. So that's, that's the tragedy of sugar products. It's The body believes it's eating the highest quality food available. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's quite deceiving. We're going to thank Mars Candy Bars for that one. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, seems, it really does seem like, uh, you know, emotions and, and breath kind of go hand in hand. Uh, yes. Which, do you, do you feel that kind of our, our breath affects our emotions more or our emotions affect our breath? More, so. Both, actually. That's a good question. Both. both. Uh, you may notice that when you, well, people tell me this all the time. They say, I, I find when I'm working at my computer on a project late at night and it's due tomorrow and I'm under a lot of stress, I, I catch myself not breathing. Suddenly I go and inhale because I haven't inhaled for a while. So um, the stress or grief or fear changes our emotions, uh, changes our, excuse me, changes our breathing. Also, uh, we breathe when we're angry a certain way. That's also a haphazard and shallow breath. Fear, we breathe very small. Uh, grief, we'll actually sob. Um, so, yes, uh, the emotions change our breath, but our breath can also change our emotions if it's conscious breathing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And one, one thing you mentioned in your book that was kind of interesting um, was ocean breathing. What, what exactly is ocean breathing? Ocean breathing in the yoga world is commonly called ujjayi breathing. I've changed the name to ocean breathing simply because I, I like using English words that are easily relatable because I find people learn faster. And it sounds a little bit like the ocean. Let me just demonstrate quickly an inhale and exhale, and you'll see why it's called ocean breath. Here's the inhale. Yeah, I've actually used that, I believe, once before. I don't remember when, but, yeah, it makes 
you really have to you know work your lungs to to be able to do that. Um, when you start your days and end your days, do you start the day with an, an, an like an exercise to give your body energy and then end the day with a relaxing kind of exercise, breathing exercise? Mostly, yes. I, I'm not always able to do this because of my travel, my heavy travel schedule. Um, as you know, I I go to about 45, 50 cities a year. So mm-hmm. I'm in airplanes a lot. So, for example, if I have to wake up three hours earlier than I normally do, I often don't do much uh, work in the mor- uh, personal work in the morning. Mm-hmm. But if I'm at home uh, and I have the time, then I can do something in the morning and the evening. That's the best way to do it. Most people are only willing to do a practice once a day, and that's fine to begin with. But I think it is ideal, especially for our emotional life, to do, for instance, two 45-minute practices, one in the morning and one in the evening, like you said, because that way we can really focus on waking ourselves up and being clear-headed in the morning without needing coffee. And in the evening, we can relax our body, our mind, and our emotions without needing or wanting alcohol or ice cream or other things to do it. Mhm. What are, what are the what's the kind of what's a few tips that someone can uh use to kind of differentiate uh, an exercise for improving your energy and one for kind of relaxing? What are the kind of key differences there? Well, things that wake you up are things which are more rigorous that require your heart to start pumping. Um more energetic athletic movement even just you know standing up straight bending down standing up straight bending down taking your head above and below your heart will cause mm-hmm. your heart to start beating faster and your blood to circulate um but the we have you know yoga postures which are more vigorous you know the downward dog the upward dog um plank pose the standing the various standing postures this all is very vigorous in the mm-hmm. evening, we can do more um, just stretching postures and um, passive postures, such as one of my favorites to do just before going to bed is something I call legs up the wall. There's a Sanskrit term for it for those out there who practice yoga called Viparina Karani. But when I found out that it, what it means is legs up the wall, <laughs> I just decided to call it legs up the wall. Mm-hmm. And it means that you're lying on your back with your body in an L shape, like the letter L. Mm-hmm. So your head's on the floor, your back's on the floor, your lower back's on the floor, your buttocks is on the floor, pressed against the wall, and your legs are vertical, completely vertical, leaning against the wall. So uh, you're you're lying down comfortably with vertical legs. Mm-hmm. And um, this position, if you hold it, hold it for about 10 minutes, lowers your blood pressure, calms the nervous system, tremendously hmm. it also drains the blood that accumulates the fluids and blood that accumulate in the feet and ankles during the day or after a plane flight down the legs and so your feet don't swell your ankles don't swell nurses mm-hmm. do this uh, this is sometimes called nurses pose because they walk miles a day up and down uh, as they take care of people in the various rooms and on their breaks sometimes they'll lie on their back put their legs up the wall so their mm-hmm. feet aren't sore Hmm. Interesting. That's. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to try that one tonight. Um, that sounds interesting, and, and just to relax and, and kind of have the benefits of that. Uh, you talk about uh, the breath and intention, um, and how kind of breathing breathes intention into every cell of our being. How can we use that to uh, create more, create a more positive, more uh, empowering intention in our lives? It's just do we do more breathing exercises and, and kind of be more aware of that, or what kind of mental space are you in when you when you're putting out an intention? Do you do it? Do you pair it with a breathing exercise? Yes, yes, it's done while breath, doing the conscious breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. Our society really underestimates the power of intention, but once again, once you start thinking about it, you can see examples all around you. One of my favorite examples is. If you've ever been given a fake hug, and I'm sure you have, where someone comes up and sort of hugs you, but it just feels awful. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, it's about as non-intimate as they can possibly make it. Well, from the outside, it doesn't look that different from a real hug. 
but because the intention is different, it feels to you in your body and your emotions totally different. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different experience. One feels like you've been slimed, and the other, a, a sincere hug, feels life-affirming. So mm-hmm. when we do something, our intention partly determines the outcome, and with relationships, it greatly determines the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um so, same thing with your own body. If you're just exercising to lose weight or to change the shape of your body to be more appealing to another person or other the other sex or whatever, that's what's going to come through. You're going to, you know, I don't really like to exercise. I have to do it. So I'll watch TV while I'll do it. That's a really lousy intention from my point of view. You're treating your body as something you don't really like. You don't like the activity, and every day you're training yourself to think that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you focus on your body while you're doing conscious breathing and movement, whether it's yoga postures or qigong movement or tai chi movement, it changes everything. If you look at a tai chi master or uh, someone who's very accomplished with yoga breathing and movement, they walk differently. You can tell when they're walking down the street, that's not an ordinary person. Look at the way that person's walking. They don't really walk differently, but the energy about them is different because they're embodied. They're not disembodied. They don't spend every day disassociating from their body. They spend every day associating with the body. So their thoughts, their emotions, their their best intentions can be felt in every cell of their body. And you can feel it across the street. Hmm. Yeah, and you can So the right. technique, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say you're right, and you you can you can see that and feel that it's it's kind of uh, seeing your body in one hand just as a physical vessel, and then on the other hand, is seeing it as a multi-dimensional being that you're uh, you have that attention and awareness and intention within that. So uh, yeah, I, I like the, I like the picture you painted <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and the uh, the technique you asked me what technique um, how to do this. Mm-hmm. is when you're doing your movement practice, whatever it is, you try to bring your mind into different areas of the body, such as if you're running, bring your mind into your feet. Pay attention to how are your feet turned out like a duck, which is going to reinforce lower back problems, or are you consciously turning your feet straight, which will help heal your lower back problems. Are you cl- hitting your heels together, which will cause lower back problems, or are your feet wide enough apart, but besides that um, mental alignment, how do your feet feel? Try to spread your toes. And when you are thinking in your feet, breathe deeply, consciously, as if your feet were doing the breathing. Now, obviously your feet aren't breathing. I don't mean this literally now, but it will feel like they are. It's basically just a way of bringing mental awareness to areas of the body that we don't usually bring awareness to. Most mm-hmm. people, from my experience of working with groups of people every day in movement are highly unaware of most of their body and their and, their, and the space around them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You talk about uh, kind of a constant state of pushing, uh, gasping, which you know is out of breath really, and uh, wanting uh, kind of people kind of approaching life in that manner, and how it's not only counterproductive. Uh, but it's damaging to the spirit, and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, can you elaborate on that and how how to kind of approach life in a different manner? Yes. Uh, our current society here, in general, does not place a great value on the human spirit. Uh, and what I mean by the human spirit is that part of us that is nurtured by loved ones, by association with our beloved pets, by nature, by... I mean, you look at adults, they go in the ocean, they start acting like they're 10 years old pretty quick. The the, the delight that we feel in nature, the um, the joy that we receive just sitting around outside a table, on a table, uh, at a table, eating good food and laughing with friends, um, fresh air coming in through the window, uh, the sounds of crickets and frogs and owls at night as opposed to, to uh, 
car alarms, police sirens, and gunshots. Um, we, uh, cities aren't designed well anymore. They aren't houses aren't designed well to create neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything's just in a row. There's no porches anymore. They don't build porches. Porches used to be the place where people sat on the hot summer evenings and talked with their neighbors. Most people don't even know their neighbors now. So mm-hmm. the, the way our society is now, the, the spirit is starving. We don't have enough basic human interaction with each other face-to-face, mm-hmm. with animals, with nature. And so if we deprive ourselves of all of those things, and then we go to a job every day that we don't really believe in. We're doing it because we need the money only. We don't mm-hmm. really listen. Say we don't even really like it, or we don't even believe in the product we're selling or manufacturing or helping to sell or manufacture. We just continually crush our soul. And then we're, we're exhausted at the end of the day, and all we want to do is feel good again, somehow. So we turn to video games, we turn to TV, we turn to ice cream, cigarettes, online chatting, and things like that, which are not really nurturing. They aren't. They're more suppressing our pain than they are bringing us joy into our life. No one's going to lie on their deathbed thinking, you know, if only I'd spent a few more hours playing video games, I would have had a better life. (laughs) One of the ways to study what's important is to study what people say on their deathbeds about their life. Mm-hmm. What's important now in hindsight, now that you're about to step out of this world, what are your regrets? Because it's pretty universal. And almost yeah. nobody says, I wish I would have made more money, uh, unless they were very poor, of course. They don't say, I wish I would have played more games, watched TV more, um, things like that. It's mostly interpersonal. I wish mm-hmm. I devoted more time to my family, my children. I wish I would have spent more time with my friends. I wish I wouldn't have worked all the time and ignored my health. I wish I would have traveled more. You know, soul or spirit nurturing activities. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we really are deeply in starvation here. Mother Teresa commented on, on this when she came here the first time. I believe it was the 1970s to bring her missionary work to the United States. She went to New York City. And after dealing with the poor in New York City for a few months, the street people, she said, this is the poorest country I've ever seen. She said, in India, you can take poor people and give them some food and a little medicine, and they're fine. She said, here, you give them food, and their, their spirit is ill. This is the poorest country I've ever seen. Hmm. That's deep. Um it's interesting, yeah. It's kind of the the whole deathbed scenario. It's it's almost like there's really it's a kind of a spirit spiritual deficiency. I think part of the reason is because we don't understand our our spirits to some degree, or we're not taught that at a young age. So we kind of grow up void of understanding our spirit, and we even associate you know the, our spirit and quote unquote spirits with you know drink or you know alcohol and spirits, night, darkness. It's like it's like a misunderstood kind of realm of our lives. So our mind and bodies are fed, but our spirits are kind of um, a void of that. So that's very, very interesting. Uh, there's something, this is just kind of a very, very open-ended question. I, I, I just would love to hear your perspective on this. What do you feel and, and think and believe the world would look like if the majority of people or even kind of that a good amount of people practiced Meditation, yoga, and breathing exercises. What, what, what would that envision in your mind? Well, that's a great question. Let me just start by saying there's a sequence to that order of, of those things that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't start with meditation. Meditation is is a part of my practice. It's a part of what I teach, but it's not something to teach people who are under great stress and can't even close their eyes without their mind just going into a tornado, basically. I would suggest learning breathing and movement together. Mm-hmm. It's called breath-initiated movement. And good yoga teachers and good Qigong teachers teach this. Then, mm-hmm. once the nervous system starts to calm down, then study meditation. Now, to 
to answer your question more fully, uh, I think it would change the world. I think it already is changing the world. Uh, the amount of people in this country now uh, that are practicing these these various disciplines uh, are having an impact on society. A lot of people who are in positions of power, social power, economic power, etc., are practicing disciplines like this, and it's changing them. Uh, I can see it. You know, I, I work with people like this. I work with people who run corporations, Fortune 500 corporations, who work or if they're in the military or they're high-level lawyers. And after they practice for a couple of years, their nervous systems are brought back into alignment. It changes the way they see the world, and they start to reprioritize their actions and behaviors. We don't have a lot of data on this. For example, when we read so-and-so billionaire just gave away a billion dollars to a charity, no one takes a microphone, goes up to him or her, and says, oh, just out of curiosity, when did you start practicing yoga in the last two years? So we, we don't have, we haven't collected data on this. Yeah. But yeah. I've personally seen so many people either leave the company they're with and start a new one, is for helping the planet as opposed to just bleeding it. Or they change the company itself that they're running. Or they change, for example, I know one man who's, who was an aggressive attorney, you know, a shark, who now has left his work and has become a mediator. It's a completely different type of work that's trying to find a common solution between two opposing parties mm -hmm. as opposed to destroy your enemy. Completely different way of thinking, right. and uh, he attributes that to his yoga practice and study his own personal study of the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, you know, we find our way in different ways, but uh, I definitely see personal changes, which lead to behavioral changes, which lead to changes in the workplace. When enough people are doing this, it's going to change government policy. It's going to change corporate policy and it's going to have a huge impact. It already is having one, but the more people do it, the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we change our way of being, we change what we're doing. Our being is I don't really think we can change the world the way we want to change the world, You know, really make it a utopia mm -hmm. until we, we do it at the personal level. Right. Because poverty, corruption, and war are not going to be solved by technology. They're, right. solved, they're going to be solved by the people who are making these terrible decisions who right. no longer want to make decisions like that. Yeah, a consciousness shift. It's Technology can, it's a, it can be a divergence. It can create poverty and abundance at the same time. It's a tool That's that a user uses. Uh, you, you're writing a new book right now called No App for Happiness. And I saw your TED yeah, talk. It's called there, there Is No App for Happiness. There Is No App for Happiness. Okay. W what is that book about? And, and enlighten us on that. Well, well I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's coming out August 1st. It's my second book. And uh, this is what it's about. It's uh, Speaking of technology, t technology has expanded at such a rate now that nearly every aspect of our world has been affected by it. At the paradox is that there's been no corresponding expansion of personal happiness. Instead, we find that the, the wealthiest societies of the world have become, as I mentioned before, depressed, anxious, and sleep-deprived, and over-medicated. At the deepest levels of human fulfillment, it seems that we grossly overestimate what technology can do for us. So this book is about the exponential growth of technology and how it's impacting us, particularly through social media and the decline of happiness. That's the first third of the book. The other two-thirds of the book are what I suggest we can do about it at the personal level, that we um, release ourselves basically from the things which no longer serve us and we adopt new habits that will bring more meaning and happiness into our life. Everyone says they want to be happy, but most people aren't even sure of what it means. So I try to ask the reader certain questions, high-level questions, which require them to give a high-level answer. 
and reveal themselves to themselves more. And then, of course, I go into breath-initiated movement toward the end as well and basically suggest a three-step daily practice where we rely on our own innate technology that we have within us. We have all the apps we need within us. We just need to upload them, basically. Mm -hmm. Update the software. That's right. Mm -hmm. Software update, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, where can listeners find uh, more information about you and your work uh, and and your book? I have a website. uh, It's maxstrom.com. M-A-X-S-T-R-O-M, maxstrom.com. And you can find um, information about my books and DVDs. I have home practice DVDs for breathing and movement. And um, also my events. As I said, I travel a lot, so you can see usually a year in advance where I'm going to be in the world, uh, uh, workshops, conferences, and things like that. Awesome. And I get around pretty uh, quite a bit, so I'll probably be somewhere near you in the next year. Great. Well, if you if you are, I'll definitely I'll definitely uh, visit the event and uh, say hi for sure in person. Thank you so Thank much. You. What city are you in, David? Say what? Where are you again? Uh, I'm in Detroit, Michigan. Oh so. yes, I, I think in the next year I am coming to uh, Parkston, Michigan. Okay. Very cool. I'll keep my eye out for that. Thank you so <laughs> much. For- <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and the interview. It's truly an honor to have you as a guest and uh, keep up the great work and uh, have an awesome rest of the day. It's my great privilege. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, have a good day. <laughs>